Hey, 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 Housers, Michael Braithwaite here. Welcome to On The Way Home. Uh, we so appreciate you listening and sharing as you see fit. This podcast is brought to you by the good people at Blue Door, uh, where I have my day job and I work with some amazing people uh, that have all sorts of programs with uh, basically the principle of harm reduction. We do a lot of emergency housing. And we say, even if you're there for one night, we don't call it shelter, it's emergency housing because it is your home for that night. Emergency housing, we do transitional housing, we do permanent housing, we do that for seniors, for families, for youth, for 2SLGBTQ plus youth, um, and, and much, much more across York Hill and Durham. We, of course, we have our awesome construct, our construction social enterprise that is preventing people from experiencing homelessness by paying them a living wage and providing them meaningful work and feeding people into our trades system where we desperately need them to build the housing that we need to avert the crisis we're in around housing across this great nation. We do this in partnership with the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness, our friends there, Tim Richter and his awesome team there. Check them out at caeh.ca. They're doing incredible work. Uh, you want to become a Built for Zero community. If you're not that already, check out how to go to their webpage. Uh, and there's some great training work we've seen just recently, even in, I think it was in Stratford and other places where they've reduced homelessness drastically uh, using those principles. So check that out and much, much more. They have a conference coming up in Halifax. They just released, um, by the time you hear this, it'll be uh, a few weeks into it, but they now have the program out for Halifax for the big conference at the end of October, early November there so check that out you want to sign up now and get your early bird discount it's about three thousand people i believe at that conference is huge it's fantastic they have uh, people from all over the world that come and present um, and share uh, what's working across canada so check that out hey let's get to today's guest i'm excited you often hear me talk about on this podcast uh income is an important piece uh of ending and preventing homelessness and of getting people into homes across this nation our income levels um, for our most vulnerable are so low uh, and it makes it extremely challenging to lift people out of poverty and homelessness. Uh, we, we've had guests on before that have talked recently. Uh, Dr. David, or Professor David, came on and talked about some work in BC with a panel and a book that he's a part of, an author of, uh, talking about income and shared some information around that. And today we have an awesome guest. I had a great conversation with uh, Lee Stevens, and she's from Vibrant Communities Calgary, a group in Calgary that does some amazing uh, work. Uh, she really works around the policy end of things and has done some great work around income supports. We talk about what is basic income. We hear that term thrown around. What does that mean? Um, why, do, why are incomes important? What's happening across the country? Because it's different in a lot of provinces around income supports. We talk about some of the great stuff that's there already that's happening around income supports for families, for seniors, for others. Uh, Lee talks about, hey, listen, the framework is already there. We could be the first country to implement basic income because we've already got that framework where we roll that out. Some of the big things that are before government, the federal government right now, uh, in fact, um, I think Royal Ascent to a new uh, disability support piece that went through just recently, which is amazing. Uh, so some good things are happening. And so we are not that far removed from having a basic income. Some big things in BC for uh, youth leaving care. There's a basic income piece there. Some income supports. We talk about some work being done uh, in the US, Point Source for Youth doing some work. And we hope to have uh, Larry Cohen from Point Source on soon to talk about that uh, project. 
but lots of stuff uh, to talk about. This conversation was really, really rich. We talked about the work that she's done, uh, the report that she's put out, uh, what she liked about uh, the, the BC um, EP panel report on guaranteed basic income and what some of the challenges were. Uh, it was a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here we go to On the Way Home. Great to have you here. Thank you for having me. And as you know, on this, this uh, podcast, we talk a lot about policy. Uh, we also talk a lot about many of the challenges we're in these days it's due to bad policy. And the only way back out uh, is to implement good policy. So, so great to have someone like you on the podcast. Before we get going and launch into the questions, we always start with that first question that everyone should answer. And that is, what does home mean to you? I'm going to say dignity and security. I feel like that really distinguishes a shelter from from a home. I love that. I love that short, uh, succinct. You know, and I love the word dignity because too often when we talk about uh, any homelessness or actual home for people, we kind of have that that good enough feel, right? Where people are like, hey, if we could just get a better tent, if we could just get a better sleeping bag or if we get a cot and we, we throw you know 300 people in a cramped space we've you know that good enough and that yeah. is not home that's survival uh, but yes. that is uh definitely not home so yes i love that dignity piece it is so important for all of us to remember when we are thinking of home uh if it's not dignified then i that's not home for mm-hmm. sure well, let's let's talk about your journey into this work um we often talk about most people, uh, when, when they get into this work, this is not what they grew up dreaming of, um, and, and nor was there a lot of, say, schooling that would drive someone into the sector. Let's talk about your journey. Yeah, absolutely. I would call myself a macro social worker, and there's not a lot of social workers doing macro work. Um, I didn't start off that way. Um, my background is working in the housing and homelessness sector, working frontline um, for close to 10 years in Calgary. And it was a lot of, you know, it was very uh, satisfying and fulfilling, but it was also um, helping people out of crisis. So it was very much um, helping people beat the odds, but kind of frustrating because you can't really do a lot to change the odds. And so when a position came up at VCC, um, they are, you know, we are the type of organization uh, that likes to focus on the root causes and sort of top of the waterfall approaches. And so I took my frontline experience and moved into this role. And I've been doing uh, policy advocacy for probably about the last five years. And this job has really helped me to distinguish the charitable model from changing systems. And so um, I absolutely love talking about root causes of poverty and income support reform is a huge part of that, uh, which is why I'm here today. And uh, last year, I accepted a new challenge, uh, a teaching position part-time at the University of Calgary. So that's what brings me here today. Ah, okay. So professor, fantastic. Uh, So just so people know, uh, VCC, Vibrant Communities Calgary, right? Yes, thank you, sorry. We love our jargon in the sector. (laughs) sector. A lot lot of people in the sector listen to this podcast. Tell me just a little bit about Vibrant Communities Calgary. What do they do, how long have they been around? as much as you can. Yeah, for sure. Um, So we're the stewards of Calgary's poverty reduction strategy, Enough for All. So we're a unique organization. We're more focused on advocacy and research. Uh, We don't work frontline, but we work with a lot of frontline serving organizations. We work with grassroots groups, 
Um, we calculate the living wage every year. So we try to work with employers. Uh, we also work with people in government. So all sectors, um, we provide backbone support and we try to convene everyone um, to implement uh, the poverty reduction strategy. And ultimately we're accountable for making sure that we move the needle. So part of that is, you know, evaluating progress on poverty reduction as well. So that in a nutshell is kind of what we do. Very cool. And you mentioned something there, you mentioned living wage. We Today, you and I want to talk a little bit about income. I think we talk about ending homelessness, preventing homelessness, reducing, preventing uh, poverty. We yep. can have that conversation. We don't talk about income. I mean, I've been uh, time and time again talking about this on the podcast. We recently had a guest where we talked about uh, basic income and some research around that. Um, and it, broad strokes. I'm hoping you could paint a picture when we talk about income supports across Canada. What's that look like? Yeah. So picture a pie chart with a whole bunch of narrow slices of pie and each slice of pie recommends a targeted income support program. So that is our Canadian income support system. We have hundreds really of very small, very targeted income support programs, um, but they don't always complement each other and not a lot of them offer a lot of money. Uh, so for instance, if you're on AISH, so which is income supports for people with disabilities here in Alberta, uh, let's say you were working and you try to collect employment insurance, that is clawed back at 100% if you're on AISH. If you're trying to collect CPPD or the Canada Pension Plan for disabilities, that's also clawed back at 100%. So we have all these income support programs, but they don't interact with each other very well. And so that creates all kinds of issues. Um, I'll talk about singles. So if you are working age and you don't have any children, there's not a lot of benefits for you other than the GST. Um, so that population, they experience the deepest levels of poverty um, because there's not a lot of supports for them. And finally, let's talk about provincial social assistance. Um, the majority of uh, provincial social assistance is means tested which means that they assess other people living in the home. Um, they assess how much education you have, experience that you have. It's very much work-based and um, it's, it's a way for policymakers to target income supports more deeply. Um, but in my, my view, if you target too much, then a lot of people fall through the cracks. Absolutely. Now, listen, I'm going to speak to Ontario because that's, that's what I know. And, and we had uh, Grima, uh, Talwar Kapoor on this before when the uh, Maitri does a lot of good work around yeah. income support. I'm familiar and, with that proposal, yes. You know, yeah, so so you, well, and, and 1995 is a date that stands out for people in Ontario because that's when uh, Ontario Works, which is um, social welfare in Ontario, social assistance, was mm -hmm. clawed back, I think it was 21%, and so we've never recovered. So. Pre-1995 mm -hmm. levels of income support were higher than they are in 2023. Mm -hmm. We have, and then just recently in Ontario, um, our disability payments were put up a whopping 5%, which is about $41, I think, a month uh, difference. So you're, you're at an income of about $1,200 a month. And, and just to, to what you're talking about there, I'm going to share some personal experience uh, with you a little bit. I have a, a sister who's struggled uh, with poverty and, and um precarious housing over the years. And she has been on disability, ODSP and CPP combined. And recently has wanted to go back to work 
And what a mess. I mean, it's so complicated for her with the fear of, well, what if work doesn't happen? Does that mean I can't then get back on? And, yes. and this is someone who wants to work, probably can. She's like, with CPP, I'm allowed to work eight hours a month. She said, what employer is going to hire me for eight hours a month? Um, I want to work. I'm afraid. Like, it, it, it's, it's messy. And I hear what you're saying. There's lots of kind of combined supports there, but they don't always kind of work in a combination that works for people. Would you agree? I agree. And what you're talking about is earning exemption levels. I know in Alberta, um, it's clawed back at a rate of 25 cents on the dollar. Um, and so eventually, as you're working and you earn, uh, you reach that threshold, you are still not at the poverty line before all of your income supports are clawed back. So there's really no incentive. So we, we talk about that as the welfare wall or the poverty trap. And there's an element of that to a certain type of basic income, which I'll get into later. Um, but the main high feature of the basic income is, is there no, there's no, it's not work-based. There are no work conditions. And that's a big feature of our provincial social assistance system, for sure. No, I love that. I love that. And let's jump on that. Uh, you know, people have heard that term, basic income. I love what you're saying. It's not based on work. Um, but, but what is basic income? When people are saying we need a basic income across Canada, we need a basic income, what does that mean? And how did we come up with that? Sure. Um, quite simply, a basic income is a payment sent from the government um, to people to make sure that they can meet their basic needs. So there's two main types of a basic income. There's the UBI or the universal basic income. And that's a type of basic income where everyone gets the same payment regardless of whether they need it or not. There's also the guaranteed basic income, otherwise known as a negative income tax, and that is income tested. So it goes to people whose income falls below a certain threshold, uh, but that's the only eligibility requirement. So that's the model of basic income that was implemented in Ontario for the pilot and in Dauphin, Manitoba in the 1970s. And so there's no one way to implement a basic income. There are so many different ways you can do it. It can complement the social safety net by combining a few income supports, or it can go all the way to the extreme where it combines all the income supports and essentially replaces the social safety net. Um, that's not a type of basic income that anyone is advocating for. But I say that just, just to make the point that there's infinite possibilities, depending on how generous you want the benefit to be. And, and who you want to target it to. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. So interesting. And, and part of the pushback sometimes I hear about basic income is they say we can't really have a one-size-fits-all. What are your thoughts around that? I agree. And that, that's why I favor a basic income that complements the social safety net for exactly that reason. Um, I don't think a basic income has to combine all of our income support programs. I think it can combine some of them. Um, but I think we also need supports for housing, for food, uh, for childcare. Um, there are other really important elements of the social safety net that we need to maintain. 
Um, but we can have uh, both, essentially. So 2020 hits, March 2020, pandemic hits. Government says, stay safe, stay at home. Impossible for you know a quarter million of Canadians that might be experiencing homelessness, people out of precarious housing. Uh, so they roll out kind of a basic income program, right, with CERB. And that level is $2,000 a month. Now, during that time, what we found too, that food banks reported the lowest usage of all time. Now, again, that might coincide with pandemic and not going out, but they had low. Now, fast forward to 2023, CERB is no longer. Yep. Food bank usage is the highest it's ever been. Obviously, if people have enough income, they can afford food, they can afford housing. They do mm-hmm. not. Um, you know, how do you kind of arrive at, at that level? There's $2,000, yet we're now saying when we roll that back, that people should survive on, say, $700 or $1,200 or whatever that might be that they're receiving through the province and other pieces a month. Yeah, unfortunately, the CERB wasn't well thought out. I think when we actually want to implement a basic income, we would want something that's sustainable and well thought out. Unfortunately, CERB just wasn't designed that way. It was, um, I don't know if you know this, but more than 40% of workers who lost work did not qualify for employment insurance. And that was one of the reasons why uh, we needed to roll out the CERB as fast as we did, um, because there are a lot of gig workers and employment insurance really didn't cover them. So that's one issue there. Um, I'll make a point on uh, the usage of the food bank. Food Banks Canada, they also publish policy recommendations every year. And the number one recommendation every year in their report is a guaranteed minimum income. Um, So no one knows this better than food banks about how important income is. Uh, They see the impacts of uh, any bump in social assistance. They notice it right away, their data. They, they They see a decrease in usage. Yeah, I mean, if, if, you know, we had to be Captain Obvious here, like income and food security, definitely related. In fact, uh, a good friend of the podcast, Neil Hetherington from Daily Bread, that's what he always says. He's like, we don't need, it's not more food. If we had the incomes, we wouldn't need to be here. And he said, please put me out of work. Um, Unfortunately, that's not happening uh, anytime soon. We need Neil and his team doing the good work they're doing. a couple of weeks back, or a couple uh, podcasts ago, we had a guest on that was part of the BC uh, EP panel report and the Guaranteed Basic Income Canadians report. Can you? What are your thoughts around that report and that panel that came out? Because it's carrying a lot of weight, and now there's a there's a book on it as well. For sure, and I want to start with what I liked because there were a lot of good recommendations actually, and I have a lot of respect for the amount of work and research that went into creating that report. Um, so worth repeating, uh, they did recommend a basic income for people with disabilities and for youth uh, formerly in care delivered through the tax system with benefits that meet the market basket measure poverty line. That's really important. As we know, there are no in- income support benefits that actually meet the poverty line. Um, you know, our age program in Alberta comes close. Uh, they recommended to index all the income support programs at the cost of living. Um, They recommended persons experiencing addiction and mental health uh, be included in the disability support system. I thought that was really important. And they also recommended removing asset tests for income support recipients. So a lot of great reforms that I think should be replicated in in other provinces. Um, So switching gears, um, I think the biggest issue that I had was the approach to basic income as a tool in and of itself or as a full substitute to the social support system. 
Um, I think that was one of the main reasons that it was rejected. Um, and so really it was, a, it was a type of basic income that, that replaced um, a lot of aspects of the social safety net. And it, it didn't consider federal support for a basic income. So it was a type of basic income that would have been financed by the province of BC on its own. Um, so when you consider that nuance, um, it makes sense actually that the panel members rejected a basic income when it is interpreted in such a way. So I, I'll maybe just briefly mention that uh, when the report came out, um, the headlines didn't capture any of that nuance. It was, you know, BC rejects a basic income. Yeah. And I think, you know, as David Green said on the podcast, a lot of people didn't read the 500 page report. So they didn't get any of the nuances or how a basic income was interpreted or, or even maybe some of the great recommendations that were in that report. Well, I think if I remember back, he also said within like 15 seconds of that report, someone already had, had chirped him back on social and said, there's no way you could have read it. <laughs> you just saw the headline, oh, or whatever it was, right? right? But but yeah, yeah interpretation <laughs> for sure. Um, let's talk a little bit about. So you and I went on a study tour in New York City. It was yep. awesome. It was uh, mm -hmm. very shocking to see how homelessness uh, in different countries is worked through. We were talking about that. I said you need to come on the podcast. We were talking about income, uh, and and we reached out. You, one of the things you wanted to talk about was renewing the social contract and how important income security is post-COVID. Very different world than it was uh, three years ago. Talk to me about that. Sure. Maybe I'll start with summarizing some recent important changes to income support in the last you know, couple of years. Um, so BC has already started to implement some of the recommendations from the expert panel report. So they are now rolling out that basic income for youth formerly in care. So, so that's really great to see. Um, Quebec, interestingly, has launched a new social assistance program called the Basic Income Program. It's not exactly a basic income program, but that's what they're calling it. Um, but it's for people who are severely restrict restricted from long-term employment. Um, it still has some conditions, so it's not a basic income in principle. However, they have increased the amount of work income that you can earn and liquid assets. So that's kind of cool. Um, the federal government announced in the recent budget that they are implementing automatic tax filing, which is huge um, because if we're delivering benefits through the tax system, it's going to go to those people who need it the most. Unfortunately, a lot of those people do not file their taxes. So automatic tax filing is super important. Also a recommendation from the expert panel report. So that's great to see. Um, so, and then of course, Parliament passed Bill C-22, um, establishing the first ever Canada disability benefit. Um, so I think we're on the road to basic income. Uh, we have a lot of basic incomes, plural, for pe persons with disabilities now, um, for seniors and, and for parents with children. Um, but the basic income for the single working age person has yet to come. And so that's important when you consider affordability challenges, um, inflation, wage stagnation, changes to the labor market like automation. Um, this is where I start to get really concerned about income security. Like we, we do not have that minimum income floor and a lot of people are falling through the cracks. And the reforms that we needed to see to employment insurance, we haven't seen them yet. We're expecting to see something mentioned in the federal budget and I didn't see anything so. Do you think, what do you think is scaring people away from, is it the financial commitment? 
I think it's making our values explicit. I think it's this deserving, undeserving framework that still, you know, dominates the way we design income support. And we don't make our values explicit when we're debating about basic income. Um, it sounds like you're debating the evidence, for instance, on work disincentives. But really, I think we're having a values argument and we're not being explicit about that. So maybe as a great first step, and I talk about this in, in the paper that I co-authored um, with professors uh, Wayne Simpson, um, Herb Emery, and retired policy analyst Harvey Stevens. So we talk about a guaranteed basic income for Canadians and making our values explicit when we debate basic income so that we um, start to get somewhere. We're not talking around in circles. You know, you can't debate someone on values with evidence. <laughs> Very true. I mean, I, uh, it's shocking sometimes um, the lack of empathy too. I mean, I put out, I think I actually put something out on uh, income just locally. And um, in the, the you know notes to the editor, when people commented, it was a lot of, you know, people just have to pick themselves up, the old bootstrapping kind of why handouts, that kind of, you know, sometimes I think we've come a long way and then I'm reminded that there are still, this, this piece, you know, we're talking about, right? There's Canadians who, who really just don't understand, um, you know, how powerful this is and how dangerous as things are not getting better, they're getting worse. So there's never been a time where we've needed this kind of income support more. Absolutely. And that's what, COVID showed us. So there's definitely a policy window for basic income. And just for your listeners to be aware, there are two bills, before, one before the House, one before the Senate. Um, and the title of those bills is an act to create a framework for basic income. And it's really just asking the federal government to figure out a framework for how we could design a basic income. So it's not a pilot or anything like that. It's just having these really important conversations about how to design a basic income. And so that it complements the social safety net, not replaces it. Love that. Complements it. Now, we've seen just recently, we've seen the federal government, child care, mm -hmm. agreements with all the provinces, bring money to the table and say, here's, you know, kind of our line in the sand that we need you to follow. We're going to fund this. Uh, we saw it um, most recently with, uh, so, so it was, was child care and with, uh, what's the other one that just recently? Dental. Dental, yeah, dental, yes. right? So this can be done. I think basic income is, you know, and that's where I see a little finger pointing where the provinces are saying, hey, listen, we need the feds to come to the table. The feds are saying it's it's a provincial issue um, where I think you, you really do need that mandated across the country. Everyone's going to, you know, like $10 a day childcare, everyone's going to yeah. make this level of income. And, and, you know, together, if provinces match us, we're, we're going to get there. Oh, yeah, I think the National Child Benefit Agreements provide a roadmap for how to implement a basic income. So, for instance, uh, there's a, the Canada Child Benefit, but a lot of provinces have, have also developed their own child benefit. So you can stack it on top or you can combine it with the federal money. Um, there's, we already have a way to do it. Um, it it's, it's just the, the, that ideology values piece. Um, we don't even have to replace social assistance. That's something we demonstrate in, in the paper we wrote. Um, you know, it can supplement social assistance or it can replace it. It's just, it's up to the province, really, what they want to do. And, and listen, is there not an economic argument to be made that people make better incomes, they're able to afford better food, they're most likely not going to the ER as much because they have housing and they have the basic needs looked after, 
Um, and maybe when you're healthy and you have better food and life is better, your, um, you know, the, the cost of living in a sense or the cost of government drops, right? So in a sense, it's an investment in people that not that you want to make the economic argument, but for those people that, that in the end, it can actually put a lot more money into the economy. What do you think? I would agree. And I'll, I always point to Evelyn Forger's study on Dauphin, Manitoba, because she calculated a reduction in the healthcare system of 8.5%. And that's actually pretty big when you think about yeah. how expensive the healthcare system is. An 8.5% reduction is nothing to sniff at. Um, so um, that the parliamentary budget officer didn't even include that when they um, estimated the cost of a basic income based on the Ontario pilot. So this is something policymakers absolutely need to look at. Um, so the Ontario pilot had good outcomes for, for health. Um, pe people were healthier. Um, Dauphin showed this. Stockton, California showed this. Finland showed this. So there are dozens of basic income experiments and unconditional cash experiments in North America and around the world that are consistently showing good health outcomes of, of basic income and without work requirements. So we can actually get good outcomes uh, without putting conditions on cash. Yes. And, well, and conditions are expensive to administer too. Yes. Now we'll overcomplicate things. I think uh, when we saw for social change uh, at West did that with small sample with, with adults where they gave them $7,500 for the year. And that $7,500, what a change, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, they were, uh, people were uh, happy, housed, saving some money in some cases. It was crazy. We uh, recently heard about uh, Point Source for Youth in uh, yes. New York City doing, you know, 20, I think it was about $20,000 a year, $24,000 a year. Yes. And they said, look, you know, to keep, keep a youth in the shelter system for a year is $60,000. Yeah. So not only are, is this better, giving them options, dignity, um, and, and getting them out of the system where, you know, it, it really is saving dollars as well and saving lives. And I, I'd love to see that uh, rolled out, you know, somewhere in Canada, maybe, hopefully, York Region, Blue Door, I don't know. Uh, but there are lots of examples out there of how this can work. Absolutely. And I, and I almost wonder if the ministry staff in BC were watching uh, what was going on in America when they implemented their basic income program for youth. Because I'm, I'm starting to hear it more and more. And they're paying attention to what each other is doing. So I wouldn't doubt that that uh, they're watching in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. It's always, you know, who, who's going to be the first out of the gate to really try and take that risk, right? And we use the word pilot sometimes to mitigate that risk. Say if it's a pilot and it succeeds, great, we can scale it. If it doesn't, it was a pilot, not too much damage done. Right. So someone's, someone's got to be the first to do it. And, and in the U.S., yeah, and the work and the research at Chapin Hall as well uh, around that. I think it's uh, uh, we tried to work with uh, Steve Gates, uh, Homeless Hub and Melanie Redman, uh, Away Home Canada uh, to do. And we're still hoping to do it. It's just expensive to do a pilot uh, around income because most government funders don't want to pay for the income piece. We'll pay for all the staffing mm -hmm. around it. It's, and that's unfortunately the most expensive part. But we, we, we do not give up hope. We hope to uh, you know, duplicate some of that work they're doing in, uh, in the U.S. with youth uh, in uh, Ontario, for sure. Cool. I, I think Canada, I think we're well primed to be the first to implement a basic income because we have a basic income for parents with children. We have a basic income for seniors. 
the old age security is, is a universal benefit for seniors. So we have lots of basic income-like programs. So that proves we have the infrastructure to do it. Um, of course, we have the CERB and the Canada Recovery Benefit. So I think we're well positioned to be the first in the world to implement basic income. Very cool. Let's hope that happens. Uh, Lee, you've done a lot of great work. If people want to check out that work, talk about uh, the co-author report you talked about, if they want to see that or see any of the other work that you're doing or check out the work at BCC, where would they go? Uh, enoughforall.ca. If you click on my picture, if you find me on that website, everything I've wrote will kind of pop up. Um, I'd also encourage you to visit basicincomealberta.ca. Um, if you're an Albertan or if you're just interested in what Alberta is doing. And then, of course, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Leandria Coward is my handle. Very, very cool. And I hope everyone does that. Now, last, you've had, uh, well, not a change. You've had uh, someone reelected in Alberta at the provincial level. What's yes. your feel? Are they, they, is the government open to this conversation or... I'm always hopeful. Um, I think we're gearing up to introduce ourselves, um, you know, making sure that all the newly elected MLAs know that there is a provincial voice. There are advocates in Alberta pushing for this. Um, so I always remain hopeful. And actually, I, I had a conversation with my MP, my conservative MP. It took me six months to get that phone call, but I got it. And I said, I don't want to hit you over the head with basic income. I just want to talk to you about it. And I want to see what your understanding is of it. And she was very grateful for that. And and we actually had a really positive conversation about basic income. So that's a great place to start with your own MP. Absolutely. Well, Lee, thank you so much for uh, all this information, for your, your passion uh, around this, uh, for creating the awareness around it as well. We hear it tossed around a lot uh, today. I know uh, myself, I've learned so much, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. You're always welcome back. If you have new uh, research reports to share, uh, just say the word and uh, we'd love to share them uh, with our listeners. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Michael. Take care. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.